wake up my, uh, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Is my sound engineer awake? All right. We're waking up too early these days. A new uh, regimen has been instituted at 1504 Aggie Lane that... uh, Involves waking the children up earlier than they have previously been accustomed to. Oh, we did. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing uh, devotions over breakfast rather than over dinner now. So that means we have to be awake. (laughs) All right. Matthew chapter 4. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and make certain that we are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together this morning and receive instruction. Father, we ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we study your truth, opening the eyes of our understanding to the... um, to the detail, to the impact, that, Father, it would be made very real in our soul. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are at the point in our Harmony of the Gospels where uh, we have a transition, so to speak, that he is moving to Capernaum. We might uh, gloss over such passages and ignore them. We might... uh, Just simply say, okay, move on. I want to get to this fishers of men passage. (laughs) Say, okay, fine. So we move. Big deal. Well, all scripture is God breathed and profitable. That would include such a passage as the fact that he is relocating to Capernaum. And as we examine it here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, I hope that we're going to glean more out of it than just simply a relocation. Uh, admittedly, there are items in the Harmony of the Gospel table that do appear to be rather extraneous. Uh, they appear to be rather, uh, okay, something you examine in passing and then you move on to the next item. I'm trying to find a, a Harmony up here. I thought I had one up here and I guess I don't. Ah, there we go. And, and admittedly, as we examine this Harmony, there are items that will encapsulate just simply a single verse. For example, the move, the return to Galilee in Mark was just a single verse, Mark 1.15. We're going to look at that passage this morning. In uh, Luke, it was just a single verse, Luke 4.15. But in John, it accompanied uh, a number of different verses, including John 4.43-45, and there were more details in that gospel as opposed to the gospels of Mark and Luke. And so we recognize that one of the goals in creating the harmony is being able to examine which passage has the fullest account and then what details are supplemented by these other gospels that aren't included even in the uh, the fuller accounts. Uh, and, and we also want to not uh, have the attitude that says, well, you know, this is just a single verse, big deal. Because, again, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So it may seem that some events may uh, 
may appear to be minimal by virtue of the fact that they only occur in a single verse, uh, I think nevertheless we want to examine them uh, carefully, rightly dividing the word of truth even in the uh, passages that may appear to be transition passages, as this one appears to be. Uh, it seems that between the Nazareth rejection and the fishers of men that, okay, this is simply a transition. But when we glance at Matthew chapter 4, 13 through 17, we realize that this is a transition that includes a substantial Old Testament fulfillment. That in Matthew chapter 4, we have citation from the prophet Isaiah, and that we have fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so, as such, it obviously is worthy of our uh, study, it's worthy of our development, not only from the Greek text of this passage, but also from the Hebrew text of the Old Testament passage being cited. In other words, yes, it's a transition, but yes, there's a lot of study that uh, gets caught up into the uh, the event. All right. Matthew chapter 4, in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And so this takes us back into the Gospel of John again in the full context of what we've studied as far as why it was that he left Judea to begin with. And this one verse, he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. That one verse encompasses what we've been dealing with over the last two months. How he left, how he passed through the Samaritan region, how he ministered to that woman at the well, how he arrived into Galilee, how the, uh, the Basilikos, the royal official, approached him in Cana, how he accomplished that miracle in Capernaum without even going to Capernaum, but he gave the word there from Cana that, you know, your son is well, and the, and the Basilikos believed and went back to Capernaum. Uh, how he then went from Cana to Nazareth and faced rejection there. There is a tremendous amount of material here that's just passed over in the Gospel of Matthew. And again, why we are taking the time to do this as a harmony or on a harmony basis. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, see. And the, even the, the phrase leaving Nazareth makes no sense to us if all we're doing is limiting ourselves to a Matthew context where, okay, he's in, he's in, uh, Judea, he's been baptized, he's been tempted, uh, and now he's got conflict, so he leaves and he withdraws into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. See? That would require some additional help if we didn't, if we weren't doing this harmony, if we didn't understand the uh, events as they're transpiring primarily in the Gospel of John. So leaving Nazareth, according to his Nazareth uh, rejection of material we've looked at in Luke chapter 4, he uh, came and he settled in Capernaum. So the first observation we make in this text, there's going to be four that Jesus established Capernaum as the headquarters for his Galilean ministry. John 3, 1 through 21. That, John, that Jesus established Capernaum as the headquarters for his Galilean ministry. And those are not, that's not the scripture reference we want there. We want Matthew four thirteen through 17. Matthew four thirteen through 17. All right. 
Jesus established Capernaum as the headquarters for his Galilean ministry. Capernaum is going to be the base of operations from which he will depart to, to make his circuits, to make his itinerant uh, ministries, and to which he will return at the conclusion of each of these itinerant traveling ministries. All right? So ignore the reference you see there to John 3, 1 through 21, and replace that with Matthew 4, 13 through 17. You understand why we don't distribute notes until after the classes have been taught. This gives us the opportunity to find the errors and to correct them in the process of teaching the class. Now, we recognize he's been there a couple of times already. He has previously spent a few days there. Back in John chapter 2 and verse 12, Jesus Christ had previously spent a few days there. John 2 and verse 12 Following the uh, turning of the water to wine, uh, prior to going to uh, Jerusalem at this first uh, uh, Passover event there where he drives out the money changers. In John 2.11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. All right. He had previously spent a few days there and his family being with them in that event is noteworthy. He now settled there, establishing a place of re residence for his earthly family. And I believe that's what he was doing in John chapter two. And that's what he now settles on here in Matthew chapter four. He now settled there, establishing a place of residence for his earthly family. The rejection at Nazareth may having an impact not only for him personally, but for his brothers, for his mother, uh, by extension. And so settling them here allows a couple of things, gives them a place to stay, first of all. But it allows for him to continue to uh, oversee, to, to watch his mother, to tend for her particular needs. Remember, Christ is very concerned about her care, given the fact that his father is no longer around given the fact that his brothers are unbelievers, given the fact that when he's hanging on the cross, he will entrust Mary to John, a disciple and a cousin, rather than to James or Jude or Silas or one of the uh, biological half-brothers. He won't commit Mary to any of those half-brothers, given the fact that they are unbelievers, even up to the crucifixion event. He will entrust Mary to John's care at the cross. And so uh, we, when we relate John 2.12 to Matthew 4.13, we recognize that there's a number of things taking place here. Not only the establishment of a headquarters on a ministry basis, but also the establishment of living arrangements for his earthly family. He, there's a difference between staying for a few days and settling there. And I think we all can acknowledge that without... Um, you know, tearing into the Greek or examining uh, specific vocabulary involved. That's just common sense. There's a difference between staying for a few days in a location and actually settling down, settling there as a place of semi-permanent residency. Thirdly, some notes we gave you previously to this. Capernaum status as headquarters stems from his identification as his own city. His own city. 
There's a reference to Capernaum in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. He has a lot of back and forth journeys across the Sea of Galilee. He's going westbound, eastbound. It's almost like, uh, you know, a Washington State ferry service back and forth from the west side to the east side. And sometimes he doesn't even take the boat. He walks across. All right. We'll have a number of these events coming up as we proceed through the uh, life of Christ in this survey. But the reference in Matthew 9, when he finally returns westbound and is back to where he, his headquarters established, Capernaum is called his own city. And that's uh, just a, a noteworthy observation to make from Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. When it comes to, you know, you think about it, when it comes to your hometown, well, you know, do you identify it as yours necessarily? See, Sharon was born in San Antonio, but moved to Austin when she was two or three or whatever, raised in Austin most, you know, basically her entire life, other than that short period of time that she doesn't remember anyway. So what does she call her hometown? Is it Austin or is it San Antonio? Obviously it's Austin. All right. Anyway, we use the terminology ourselves, given uh, not only where you were born, where you were raised. Paul was uh, Saul of Tarsus, for example, as Mr. Dow was teaching us on Sunday evening. Uh, that was where his he was born. That was where he was raised. But his Pharisee training at the feet of Gamaliel actually took place in Jerusalem. And so he might refer to Jerusalem as his own town or the, or the Jewish people as his own people. And he certainly identified with the Jews as his countrymen more so than politically he would have identified with the Greeks of, of Tarsus. So these are all things that we would consider, but it says in Matthew 9, 1, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed and the things that happened there. Finally, the uh, geographic or the historical establishment of Capernaum, the village of Nahum, may be the etymology for Capernaum, but we still do not have the complete connection with the prophet that wrote the book of that name. The village of Nahum. In the Hebrew or in the Aramaic, Kafir is, is, uh, is a village. And you could take Capernaum as being the Kaper Naum, the, the village of Nahum. Uh, and that may very well be the understanding of it. There's also other uh, potential meanings for Capernaum. Some possible Greek renderings, for example, as opposed to uh, Hebrew renderings. The precise connection with that prophet is unknown. So if we were to try to derive a connection with Nahum to this town, we'd have a hard time doing it. We've tried to find a connection between the book of Nahum and this town. We have a hard time doing it. Uh, Nahum, remember, is Jonah part two. Nahum is 150 years after Jonah going to Nineveh, telling Assyria, you're done. There's no repentance at this point. You can't even listen to this warning like you listen to Jonah's warning and be delivered because Jehovah is destroying you. And that's the, uh, the message of Nahum and uh, does not appear to have any connection with this particular city, with Capernaum, with Galilee, with uh, this region at all. But some people will insist upon it and make a big deal out of the village of Nahum. Uh, I'll give it to you for your consideration, but I don't find the connection there with that particular prophet. What I do find a connection with is the prophet Isaiah because Matthew quotes Isaiah when it mentions the Isaiah prophecy as the basis for the relocation. And we read that here now in Matthew chapter 4. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. 
we have it described here as a purpose clause for the move. When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled, came and settled. Now, the uh, object of came and settle is in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. That was their land grant. This was their division of the land as it was given uh, in the original conquest and the original division of the land under the leadership of Joshua. In the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, this was to fulfill. Now, the words this was are italics, italicized, meaning that they're not contained in the Greek, but they're supplied to help give explanation. We can leave them out. It's still a full sentence when we say to fulfill. That tells us we have a purpose clause. This is the purpose for came and settled. He came and settled to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So under point two, we observe the Capernaum headquarters was established in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Capernaum headquarters was established in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We have Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to turn back here in a moment. The versification is a little different, though, in the Hebrew text from the English text. In the English text, it's Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. In the Hebrew text, what we have as Isaiah 9, 1, they include at the end of chapter 8. So it's Isaiah 8, verse 23. And then what is our Isaiah 9, 2 is the first verse of Isaiah 9, 1 in the Hebrew text. BHS being the abbreviation for the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, the Hebrew text. Regardless, it is two two sequential verses, uh, whether it ends chapter 8 and begins chapter 2 or whether both of them appear at the beginning of chapter chapter 9, it is two sequential Hebrew verses. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. All right. Now, some study on this. And we can turn back to Isaiah chapter 9 and get a look at it. Isaiah chapter 9. And it's remarkable because some uh, skeptics will say, okay, the Old Testament was written hundreds of years before Jesus. Uh, It was finished 400 years before Jesus in terms of Malachi and the earlier stuff with uh, with uh, Moses writings was another thousand years prior to that. So from 14 from 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C., you've got a thousand year span of time in which the Bible, the Old Testament was being written. Let's just call it the Bible being written. Okay, we'll just say for the sake of argument that the uh, Jesus and his disciples don't know that there's going to be a New Testament written. So as far as they know, the Bible's done as far as they know, starting with Moses, ending with Malachi for a thousand years. The Bible was put together and now it's done. Thirty nine Old Testament books or, you know, fewer that in the Hebrew books. All right. The Bible's done. And now here they are. This is the, the skeptics 
mind you. Now here they are, Jesus and these 12 guys walking around, and they're going to try to fulfill these prophecies because they can look at them and read them and say, oh, okay, let's go fulfill this stuff, right? The skeptic would have you believe that. And the skeptic would have you believe that, oh, okay, there's a prophecy here about Galilee of the Gentiles, so let's go set up a headquarters over here in Capernaum, right? The skeptic would have you believe that that's what Jesus and these 12 guys were busy doing, trying to, trying to live their lives in such a way that they could claim, oh, we're fulfilling prophecy, okay? Now, on the surface, you can look at that and say, all right, Fair enough. It's conceivable that if I know about prophecies that were already written hundreds of years ago, that I might take some efforts to live in such a way so I can claim, yeah, look, this is being fulfilled. But what about the things that I'm not fulfilling? What about the things I'm choosing not to manipulate? The things I can't manipulate, for example. I still haven't figured out how Jesus manipulated being born in Bethlehem. (laughs) You know, how he picked out his virgin mother and that was all just trying to, you know, trying to say, you know, read what was had been written and then, you know, make it happen in his life. And it also fails to address why it is that he will uh, pursue some things and not pursue others. And that's what we're going to get a clear look at here in Isaiah chapter 9. All right, so turning back to Isaiah 9 and verse 1. I'm assuming you're all reading your English text this morning. If you have your Hebrew text, then you can turn to Isaiah 8.23. All right. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, from the standpoint of Isaiah... We're talking 700 years before Christ. And even in this context, he's talking about earlier on and later on. That's from his own standpoint of earlier on and later on. It will be applied ultimately by Jesus Christ in this later on concept. But recognize that we have an earlier on and a later on emphasis here in this text. The people who walk in the darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. But you'll also notice that Isaiah's prophecy does not stop there. Matthew's quotation stopped there, but Isaiah's prophecy doesn't stop there. All right? Now follow this. Follow this thinking because this is what we did last week when we were in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus was reading a prophecy from Isaiah. And Jesus reads a verse and a third of another verse. And then he stops and he rolls up the scroll and he hands it back to the attendant. And he sits down in the synagogue and he starts to teach them. And he says, today this uh, scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus Christ deliberately stopped his reading at a point where the, the Isaiah prophecy... If you recall last week, it was Isaiah 61, where the Isaiah prophecy was shifting between first advent and second advent. And Jesus stopped his reading at that point of the prophetic shift at the point where he completed the first advent part of it, rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant and sat down here. Likewise, Matthew, the author, has stopped his citation and gone on to describe other things in his gospel record. So. But we recognize that the quote that he was taking in Isaiah 9 was much larger than the excerpt that he 
that he reproduced in Matthew 4. Notice, after it gets to the uh, those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them, it goes on. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Okay? After leaving verse 2, moving on into verses 3 and 4, we've left a first advent application and we've gone into a second advent application. Israel, for the most part, was not glad at the, at the ministry of Jesus Christ. They were rather angry at the ministry of Jesus Christ, so much so that they crucified Jesus Christ. You shall break the yoke of their burden, it says in verse 4. And the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, is at the battle of Midian. A, a, a significant element in the rejection of Jesus Christ was the fact that he wasn't breaking the Gentile yoke. They wanted to make him king. They wanted him to break the yoke of Rome and to exalt the Jewish nation. And he wasn't doing that in first advent. And the Judas Iscariot in particular... Uh, others, I can imagine Simon the Zealot, the, the entire party of the Zealot party, they were, they were driven to uh, freedom, to throwing off the bonds of Rome, to exalting the throne of David. They wanted millennial blessings, and he wasn't supplying that in first advent. He was rather telling them that he was going to the cross. So... Notice the uh, every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. And the great battlefield victory of Armageddon and the destruction of the enemies and the burning of the uh, enemies' uh, weapons and so forth, that is all still future. That is all tribulational. Armageddon, second advent in its fulfillment. It is not first advent in its fulfillment, but second advent in its fulfillment. Now, as with chapter 61, so too here with chapter 9, so with many Old Testament prophecies of the Christ. The coming Christ is portrayed in single messages, single prophecies, without a, an understanding that there are two events. The Old Testament does not uh, clearly explain first advent and second advent does not clearly explain the fact that the suffering Messiah is coming and then 2,000 years later, the victorious Messiah will come again. The Old Testament prophecies simply look forward to a coming Messiah and do not make the distinctions in time between two advents. When you and I talk about first advent and second advent, we can do so as church-age believers with a perspective in between the two advents. I cannot emphasize this enough. We stressed it last week. We're stressing it again this week because it's applicable here. We have the, the perspective to look back and to look forward. All right? All they were doing was looking forward. And which one of those is 2020? <laughs> Hindsight is 2020. That's right. We can look back at the things fulfilled and say, oh, that's how it was fulfilled. Okay. But we're looking forward, and we still have a lot of questions about the things looking forward. And it bugs me to death when some uh, pastors dealing with eschatology get so dogmatic in the things they're teaching as if they're cast in stone. When not even the first advent prophecies could be taken that way. 
I think it's very dangerous to take second advent prophecies that way. All right. In any event. So this is the full context of Isaiah 9. Now, for those skeptics who say, well, he only moved to Galilee because he was trying to fulfill uh, you know, he was trying to do through his own effort, through his own manipulations, he was trying to fulfill what the prophet said. Well, if you're going to carry that logic fully, well, then why was he not breaking the yoke of their burden? Why was he not bringing in the government? See, as it says, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Jesus Christ in the first advent never once tried to take the reins of government. Other people wanted him to. And when those movements, uh, you know, when they rose up to make him king, he was out of there. He would flee. We'll see some of those coming up. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You know, he never takes that name. Read the Gospels. All through. He never, you know, takes the name, never claims the name, never had, no one ever addresses him by that name. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Terrific titles, but he never um, made use of them during his first advent. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It is still yet future second advent in his fulfillment. So, sub-point A. Again, the point, point two, the Capernaum headquarters was established in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Sub-point A. Two tribes who do not have much impact in the Old Testament will see their land-grant territory become a scene for divine illumination. Two tribes who do not have much impact in the Old Testament will see their land-grant territory become a scene for divine illumination. This is where the light will arise. (laughs) You know, the land of Zebulun. Land of Naphtali. Tonight's question and answer night, I might ask, uh, name uh, three prominent uh, Zebulonites. Who was your favorite Naphtaliite? Nobody can do one. And if you come up with one tonight, I'll know you cheated. I know you went home and you found an Unger's Bible Dictionary somewhere and you you tried to find some obscure Zebulonite. And you're going to try to impress us with your knowledge this evening. All right? I might do the same thing. (laughs) Because this morning, I don't think I can name a single Zebulonite. I might have one or two by this evening. They weren't featured as far as uh, glorious uh, prophets arising or judges or generals or deliverers or prophets or uh, any significant events taking place. Rather out of the way, rather obscure. And I find it interesting is that part of the father's plan was for the son indeed to grow up in obscurity, to have his childhood in such obscurity. And even at the beginning of his earthly ministry to begin his ministry in relative obscurity. In fact, his brothers are rather disappointed. 
By the time we get to John chapter 7, his brothers are saying, you know what, this Galilean ministry, big deal. You need to get to Jerusalem. You need to move up to the big time. You need to get on the big stage. This Galilean ministry hasn't done anything for your, your uh, personal glory. <laughs> and by extension, their personal glory. All right. Two tribes who do not have much impact in the Old Testament will see their land grant territory become a scene for divine illumination. Earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Point B. In Isaiah's day, these northern territories were under Assyrian occupation. In Isaiah's day, these northern territories were under Assyrian occupation. By the time Isaiah is writing, Isaiah is in the southern kingdom. Isaiah is the prophet uh, primarily when uh, Hezekiah, for example, is king of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom being swept away by the Assyrians. And uh, even... Uh, even Jerusalem itself being threatened by the Assyrians and Isaiah giving the encouragement, you know, do not be afraid. Jerusalem will not fall. The Assyrians will not wipe away Jerusalem. That's going to be the Babylonians in another 150 years. <laughs> so relax. The Assyrians can't, can't destroy Jerusalem. They're under Gentile occupation and under Assyrian occupation. Galilee of the Gentiles. This land having been given over. The, the, the Jewish people having been swept away, the northern tribes gone. Where is Zebulun at this point? In captivity. Where is Naphtali? Where is Issachar? Where is Gad? Where are these northern tribes? Dan. Swept away. Judah and Benjamin are remaining, and then faithful believers from those other tribes are remaining in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom, holding out against the Assyrians. And things seem pretty dark during this time. But Isaiah is giving him a message of hope. In Jesus' day, Galilee was a mix of Jewish, Greek, Roman, and other Gentile populations. In Jesus' day, Galilee was a mix of Jewish, Greek, Roman, and other Gentile populations. About 700 years thereabouts separate the prophet Isaiah from the life of Jesus Christ. And yet the term Galilee of the Gentiles continues to be a very accurate term for this particular region. That's why there was such scorn on the part of the Judeans towards the Galileans. Because in the way of the thinking of the Judeans, um, if you were Jewish, you belonged in Jerusalem. You belonged near the temple. You belonged there in the, in the hill country of Judah. You belonged in, uh, in, in that particular homeland. And the other regions were defiled by all the Gentiles. The whole Samaritan region was filled with Samaritans. That was a problem. <laughs> the Galilean region was filled with Greeks, Romans, see? And uh, the, the commerce between the, uh, the Jews and the, and the Gentiles there was very profitable for the, the Jews that engaged in it, but very uh, uh, negative to the pious, to the Pharisees, the ones that were separate, the ones that were holy, the ones that would have no dealings with such Gentiles. 
And as such, they would have no dealings with the Galileans who had dealings with the Gentiles. See, and they would look at them as as uh, as uh, compromisers. See, worldly. I was going to uh, and I got distracted before we uh, started here. I was going to put some maps on the screen and uh, let you examine. You probably have maps. I'm sure you have maps in. Uh, your um, back of your Bibles, you have the the Galilean region. Uh, you understand the uh, outline of it. I was just going to grab a Galilee map here. Galilean ministry, and we'll see how large I can make this. Oh, you know what? I probably can't make that any larger. All right, well then, I'll draw pictures. Because I know you enjoy pictures. It's the fastest way to draw Israel. <laughs> this is the coast of the Mediterranean. Here is the uh, River Jordan, much smaller north of the River of the Sea of Galilee. River Jordan again, Dead Sea. All right, down here is the Sinai Peninsula, and down here is Egypt. All right, this is our main Judean region. This is Samaria, and this is Galilee. And the uh, over here we have Perea, we have Decapolis. There's other regions up here. Further north is uh, Syria, with uh, Damascus as their capital. All right, now the Primary trade routes are here, cutting right through Galilee. And uh, to get between uh, Damascus and the Syrian regions, to get to Egypt, to get up here to Asia, like Tarsus and Ephesus and the regions up there, Galilee was the crossroads. Judea was not a trade route crossroads because here we have the hill country and here is uh, Jerusalem up in the mountains, up in the hill country, Mount Zion and so forth. And it was not a trade route like Galilee was a trade route. Galilee has the valleys that transgress there, including huge uh, valleys like Megiddo, the, the valley where Armageddon will be fought and so forth. Uh, ports on the sea allow for ships to, to dock here. The uh, east-west routes, the north-south routes, uh, Galilee is the crossroads. And this is why we have the mix of Roman, Greek, Jewish locations. You have uh, Nazareth as a, as a Jewish town. You have Cana as a Jewish town. Right in the middle is a place called Sepphoris. S-E-P-P-H-O-R-I-S, Sepphoris. You ever heard of Sepphoris? You never heard of Sepphoris? It's because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> Sepphoris is not found in the Gospels. We have no record that Jesus passed through there or traveled there. But it was a massive city in between uh, Nazareth and Cana. It was in that region of Galilee. But it was a Roman city. It was a Greek city. Not featured in the New Testament. Not known to uh, believers that are reading the New Testament, but very known to uh, historians to scholars and so forth other cities Capernaum 
we know about because Capernaum was uh, was uh, featured in the Bible so often. But south of Capernaum, we have another Caesarea over here. There's another Caesarea on the coast. You familiar with Caesarea? There's a couple of Acts references to the coastal Caesarea right here because Paul was in prison there. He had one of his Roman trials there and then he shipped out from there to go to Rome. But it's not featured in the Gospels. Jesus didn't travel there so far as the Gospels record. All right. There's a tremendous amount to the to the geography beyond the uh, beyond the uh, Jewish cities. All right. Actually, this one here was better known as Tiberius. In later years, named after the Roman Emperor Tiberius. In any event, Galilee of the Gentiles, very accurate term, very much a mixture of Greek cities, Roman cities, even an old Egyptian city on the coast called Byblos, an Egyptian colony at one point, Phoenician colonies on the coast. Galilee of the Gentiles. In Jesus' day, Galilee was a mix of Jewish, Greek, Roman, and other Gentile populations. Fourth, the Isaiah prophecy indicates that the great Galilean light is a child and a son. Did you notice that in Isaiah 9-6? A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The Isaiah prophecy indicates... That the great Galilean light is a child and a son. That sounds redundant. Sounds repetitive. Might even be redundant and repetitive. But it's describing two things. It's describing first advent and second advent. He will break the Gentile yoke and bring in peace as the Davidic king. Verses 2 through 7. We've gone through this. Um, we've seen these titles, most of which we can apply in a second advent context, one of which we really struggle how God the Son can be God the Father. And uh, some people uh, get confused in terms of eternal father and they say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus Christ was God the Son. Why is he called here eternal father? All right. But we have both a child born and a son given. We'll demonstrate the first and second advent prophecies here point three thus in isaiah 9 we observe a similar prophetic shift to that which was observed in isaiah 61 we observe just like we had last week in isaiah 9 we observe a similar prophetic shift to that which was observed in isaiah 61 first advent and second advent fulfillments are presented together and so they must be rightly divided so important First Advent and Second Advent fulfillments are presented together and must be rightly divided. Of course, 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing the word of truth. Hope I'm not losing anyone on this because I mentioned last week and the week before when we were spending so much time in Luke 4 and in Isaiah uh, 61 the uh, the necessity to be careful with the text to recognize that a single Old Testament prophecy may in fact be dealing with separate events 
separated by thousands of years in terms of first advent and second advent that we might have such prophetic shifts and in many cases there is no clue in the text where that shift might be not until it's revealed for us in additional scripture such as we have in the gospels all right and isaiah is a good one for this uh, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 9, Ezekiel is a good one for this. Ezekiel uh, 28, for example, in dealing with the prince of Tyre versus the king of Tyre. Uh, Isaiah 14, dealing with the fall of Satan. These are passages that all feature what I call prophetic shifts. All right, a child born, first advent. A son given, second advent. Guess what? When he comes back in Armageddon, there's no more babe in the manger. <laughs> there's no more you know i mean mary doesn't have to have another baby she had one that's done when he comes back second advent he's riding a white horse he's dressed for battle his robe is dipped in blood he has a name written on him the word of god he's victorious he's not laying aside privileges of deity privileges of glory he's coming in the glory of his father big differences between first advent and second advent a child is born first advent humility obscurity um, coming to serve not coming to conquer big differences between first advent and second advent under points c and d we have the light shining we have the yoke breaking still in this context of isaiah chapter 9 the people who walk in darkness will see a great light those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The light shining, first advent. The yoke breaking, second advent. So we can break down verses 2 and uh, verse 2 as the light shining, first advent. Verses 3 and 4 and 5 as the yoke breaking, second advent. The Gospel of John even starts off with there was the true light coming into the world. The Gospel of John begins with this aspect of the light shining and the fact that men hated the light. They loved the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. That's John 1.5. John 1.9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. All right, this is the light. And the men hated it, would not come to the light because of their darkness. They loved the darkness and hated the light. We have that in chapter 3 and verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, uh, who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. All right, so you add John three, nineteen through 21. Add John 1. Verse 5 and verse 9. And you'll have the uh, impact of the light shining as first advent fulfillment. Yoke breaking, second advent in fulfillment. The um, 
the, uh, the gladness, the harvest, the spoil, all of those gladness. This, this gladness can't come yet. Because Israel has not yet experienced the sorrow that they're going to experience. They think they have it rough under the Romans. They haven't seen anything yet. Israel under great tribulation will finally be uh, disciplined to the point where they will be broken. Where their rebellion will be squashed. Where they will be humbled. Where they will embrace their Christ. But not until tribulation. Then, having gone through that, will the comfort and the rejoicing and the spoil then be their, uh, be their supply. All right, back to Matthew 4 then. Back to Matthew 4. Do we have any questions? Anything confusing in Isaiah 9? Do you see two advents in Isaiah 9? You see first advent and second advent, and you see how it's presented together in one overall message. But from the standpoint of the Gospels, we start to get the scriptural basis on which we can rightly divide the word of truth and isolate the first advent elements and the second advent elements. And we do so not uh, in any artificial way, but in a biblical way to recognize what has been fulfilled and what is still yet promised. Is this making sense? Do we have any questions? All right, back to Matthew 4 then. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. This is why he relocates. And uh, we ought to recognize uh, in this incident that not only is there uh, practical ministry things taking place, he is establishing Capernaum as his headquarters. It's a great headquarters. Centrally located, he can travel throughout the Galilean region. He can cross the sea to the uh, to the uh, the Sea of Galilee to the eastern regions. There, it's a, it, on, a, on a practical basis, it's a great spot for ministry. It's kind of like when a church says, "Hey, this is a a corner lot, or this is on a main avenue, or this is, has a visible presence in the community." You can look for that kind of thing, but those are earthly terms. He has a place where he can establish his family. Again, earthly terms. Assuming that his brothers are, are carpenters by trade, like his father was, like he was, uh, Capernaum is a, is a massive city, and they'd have plenty of work and, and circumstances there. But he's fulfilling prophecy. He's obeying the Father's will. There is a spiritual aspect to this decision. And when Horseshoe Bay is coming to decisions, when Austin Bible Church is coming to decisions, we don't want to get lost in the earthly things. The business side of things, the financial details, we want to remember that first and foremost, we're to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First and foremost, we must be ministering according to the biblical model. Then we can examine the practical considerations. We can examine the financial impact. We can examine the other earthly external things, but it must be the spiritual um, application that comes first. All right, then. We wrap it up with verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The fourth observation from this event. The preaching ministry in Galilee was a kingdom of heaven at hand, warning for repentance. The preaching ministry in Galilee was a kingdom of heaven at hand, warning for repentance. I probably should have... Put this in quotes. A kingdom of heaven at hand warning. 
Put a little hyphen in there. It was a kingdom of heaven at hand warning for repentance. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had a repent message. This is where people get confused. <laughs> they have the wrong target for repentance. They, they make repentance a feature of their evangelism. They start foaming at the mouth and ranting and raving and screaming and thumping their Bibles and telling sinners they need to repent. Alright. Now, sinners need to believe. Now, an activity that's going to precede that believing will be a mental attitude repentance as they're convicted, as their soul is prepared, as they're uh, positive to gospel hearing and place their faith in Christ. But a, a person needs to believe. And that's the imperative, not repent. The vast majority of repentant passages in the New Testament are targeted towards believers to, to be prepared for an event, in this case, the coming of the Christ or the kingdom of heaven. All right. Repent. So point A, this was John the baptizer's message as well. We recall from Matthew chapter three and verse two, John the Baptist came in the wilderness of Judea preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was John the Baptist's ministry before Jesus came on the scene. There he is raised in the wilderness, dressed like a like a wild man eating locusts and wild honey not cutting his hair and he shows up and he's telling him repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand he says after me is coming one greater than i and then he comes and he says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and now jesus christ has a message that says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Jesus Christ has a similar message, an identical message to the baptizers. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I hope we can approach this from a first century perspective and not a 21st century perspective. Because all too often you and I are trapped by our hindsight. Hindsight is 2020, but hindsight is also um, tunnel vision in a lot of ways. Because we look back and, and we know that the Jews rejected their Christ. We look back and we know that they crucified their Christ. See, we know that Jesus Christ was resurrected and ascended, seated in heaven, and he's now waiting for the Father's word to return now and establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Presently, though, Jesus Christ is in heaven. All right. Now we know all this, but can we for a moment maybe forget that we know all this? Can we possibly set aside what we know and approach these texts on the basis of not knowing that the Jews are going to crucify their Christ, not knowing that they're going to reject their Messiah, not knowing that the kingdom of heaven is 2000 years away and counting? Because Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, right here, right now, ready to be manifest at hand. So either Jesus is a liar, in which case he didn't really mean it was at hand. He really knew that it was 2,000 years down the road, but 
uh, he's going to lie to them anyway and say, here it is. Or it really was at hand, and God the Father's grace eternal plan was such that it is not thwarted by virtue of human volition. See, that God knows the what-ifs. God knows the acceptance versus the rejection. God knows that it's not going to be accepted, that it is going to be delayed, that it will be 2,000 plus years down the road, that there will be a church age in between. God knows all that, but nevertheless, the offer is still a genuine offer. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And under other volitional circumstances could have been instituted in 3380. See, that the kingdom of heaven is literally right here at hand. This was the message of Jesus Christ. It was John the baptizer's message as well. It is called the gospel of God in Mark 1 verses 14 and 15. Let's look at that. I hate to, I'm out of time, and it's almost a shame. It's almost worth ending four minutes early than trying to start something that's just going to open more questions between now and next week. Because you say, well, Pastor, how many different Gospels are there? Why is this called the Gospel of God? And why elsewhere do we have something called the Gospel of the Kingdom? And why elsewhere do we have... The gospel of Jesus Christ. And why elsewhere does Paul say, my gospel? And then why does Paul say, if you teach a different gospel, you're accursed? So, all right, I admit, three minutes isn't enough time to deal with all this. <laughs> okay? Let me just give you a taste. Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled. Isn't that remarkable? And the kingdom of God is at hand. We have the gospel of God and the kingdom of God. And, and Bible students that rightly divide the word of truth have to answer the question, is the kingdom of God the same as the kingdom of heaven? Other studies go into this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. And then he goes and he grabs the fishers of men and he gives them the message there. All right. I'm out of time. So we will come back to this next week. And we will discuss this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of God, this repentance message and what it truly is. And if it should be a message that you and I incorporate today in our own evangelism or in our own Bible teaching. We'll discuss that as well. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We do thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.